This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We mentioned some of the COVID headlines uh, about Texas dispatching people to Walmarts to get them to get vaccinations. Some 70%, Tim, of New York City residents, they have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Oh, wow. Looking out, uh, that's pretty good compared to where we are in the world and, of course, where we are in the United States. Uh, some other numbers here. Globally, cases topping 192.2 million, deaths exceeding 4.1 million. As far as vaccines look, more than 3.71 billion doses administered. Remember, a lot of these vaccines require two doses. Yeah, absolutely. And everybody's been out, or a lot of people, I should say, from uh, the Biden administration out there talking about the importance of vaccinations and also understanding uh, information, factual information when it comes to getting that vaccine. Well, earlier this week on Monday, Dr. Anthony Fauci caught up with our David Weston uh, of uh, Bloomberg about the rising cases and about accessing factual information. The best way to counter misinformation and disinformation is by providing a lot of correct information. And that's the reason why you have to get trusted messengers out there. The people who people in the community look to and trust, that could be a family physician or a healthcare provider, a clergy person is another group of individuals that are highly respected, or community leaders that people in the community look up to, much better than having government officials always doing it. And of course, that's Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, the nation's top infectious disease uh, doctor on COVID, speaking earlier this week to David Weston. Well, joining us now is Rupali LeMay, Associate Director for Behavioral Research at the Institute for Vaccine Safety at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Falls Church, Virginia. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Rupali, it's great to have you back on the program. I, I, my question is about getting people who haven't been vaccinated, vaccinated. If you haven't been vaccinated yet, despite the availability, despite the that sense that they're actually free, are you actually going to go get vaccinated? Is there anything that public health officials or clergy members or family members can tell you to get you vaccinated? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. I think a couple of things that we're seeing in terms of the proportion of folks that are unvaccinated these typically are individuals that have had hesitancy in the past and have concerns that just haven't been addressed. And a huge issue that we are seeing with folks that are still not vaccinated is really the exposure to misinformation, and as Dr. Fauci said, to disinformation. And that's really informing, I think, their decision-making process. What can we do? I think we have to continue to have one-on-one conversations with people. We need to make sure that we're empathetic when people have concerns and not be dismissive of those concerns. And really, in in my mind, this is really public health 101, right? It's sort of having boots on the ground. It's talking to people to where, to meeting them where they are and making sure that they feel comfortable with the information that you're providing to them in a way that is accessible, that's understandable, and that is trustful. Well, you know, I think part of the problem is, too, that general public doesn't always maybe trust government (laughs) or trust big pharma. And so it's, I guess, a feeling of 
everybody's kind of talking their book. And I guess how do we get to a point where, wait, it isn't about that. It's about there's science behind things. And so, you know, where do we go? Where does someone go um, to really get the truth about something, right? I mean, we're so also quick when we've got an ailment, right, to go online and Google and <laughs> and read about things. But there are sources that are better than others. What's your advice to the general public? And, and I agree that going to health providers that you trust, um, what else would you suggest? I think you make a really good point. There has been a decline in trust in the healthcare system here in the United States. And we saw this pre-COVID. And then I think it has continued to decline. And I think that has been exacerbated by social media. One thing to think about is that the person that you trust the most with regards to information about vaccines might not be a healthcare provider. And a lot of states have done an excellent job leveraging these different trusted voices, if you will, such as clergy, for example, civic leaders, teachers. Um, And so I think it's not just about, you know, going to if you trust your healthcare provider, definitely. But it seems like people that are hesitant tend to not trust their healthcare provider. And so I think the key here is leveraging some of these other voices to really come forward and talk about their experience with the vaccine and, you know, a recommendation as to whether or not they have gotten the vaccine and why their folks and people that they know should get the vaccine. I think that is key. The other piece to all of this is that I think it's going to take a long time to rebuild this trust. I think part of the issue with all of this is that recommendations have changed over time to keep up with the science. From a public health perspective, that means that science is working and public health is working. The public may not see it like that. Right. They see see it as like a flip-flop, right? Exactly. And so that has also led to even, I think, more distrust of the healthcare system and the CDC um, and generally public health in general. So I think the other piece of all of this is how do we explain to folks that, you know, we're just trying to follow the science and then that's coupled with this whole rise of anti-science and I think a number of, um, of outlets, and I won't name them, are really skewing information that's not correct and that I think fuels this anti-science sentiment that we have seen increase, especially over the last year related to COVID. Uh, behavioral research. Uh, this Understanding is... people is not easy in yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, Rupali's, that's what, that's what Rupali does. I, I'm wondering about um, really effective ways beyond clergy. I mean, I'm thinking like, are we to a point where we're going to be seeing people, uh, officials go door to door to actually provide vaccines to those who, who haven't gotten them yet, Rupali? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are many different approaches that have been tested and true within individuals that are vaccine hesitant and have been able to nudge the needle, if you will, right, toward vaccination. So some of those are things using presumptive communication. You know, one thing I think people forget from a behavioral perspective is that getting the vaccine is the norm. It's not an anomaly. And so I think leveraging the power of that and essentially saying that, you know what, everyone around you is getting the vaccine. Everyone has gotten the vaccine. But is that is that the case, though? Sorry to interrupt. Is that the case in in all communities? Are there some communities where that's still you're sort of the outlier if you do get the vaccine? It's not. And I think part of the issue, though, if you think about this from a national standpoint, we are doing relatively well. The issue that we're seeing and the reasons that we're seeing continuing outbreaks is because we have those pockets, right? So it's not evenly distributed with regards to vaccine coverage. So from a behavioral perspective, though, it's very important to talk about this from the normative and say essentially, you know, folks in the United States, if we look at our overall numbers, we're doing really well, but the reasons that we are seeing outbreaks is because it is uneven. Mm. And so within these pockets, I think, you know, social norms are very, very, very important, right? So if you think about these pockets and the reason it's not homogenous, 
and there is so much heterogeneity within these different communities is because norms are very powerful. People are using their social networks to determine whether or not they want to get the vaccine. That social network can be through social media, right, which is a huge issue because of all the misinformation. But what we're also seeing is that there has been a strong polarization related to vaccine attitudes, meaning if you are pro-vaccine and if you get the vaccine, it's very it's not likely that you're hanging out with friends in your close social network that aren't getting the vaccine. The issue with that is that means that you're essentially hearing what you're leading to an echo chamber, right? right? You're right. only talking to people that have the same type, right? Have the same type well, of attitude that you do. You know what? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You finish, please, please, please. <laughs> sorry. No, and I think, it, no, it's okay. I think in terms of the clergy piece, I mean, yeah, and going door to door, I think that is an option, but I do think that the social network piece is more prevalent and more persuasive with regards to changing behavior in this context. And so it's important to identify opinion leaders within these clusters that are unvaccinated that might be willing and open to get vaccinated and have them really serve as the spokesperson and to say, this is what I decided. This is why I made this decision. This is why I first didn't want to get the vaccine, but then I decided to get the vaccine because what we are hearing, especially from colleagues that are frontline workers, is that as people are putting back, unfortunately, on ventilators or in ICU, they are then begging for the vaccine, right? So it's sort Mm -hmm. of retrospective, like, oh, I really wish I would have gotten it. Um, And so I think there is a way in which we can leverage really that power of social networks and really opinion leaders within these social networks that might be not only well-regarded, but might also have influence um, over those that are unvaccinated. You know, Rapali, what's interesting too is I think about the things that we all do, or if I went to a doctor and gave me a prescription, I would probably not look up that prescription and look at the science of because it. Because it came from a doctor. Because it came from a doctor. Mm-hmm. I would just do it. Like, think about the things we eat, the things we use, cosmetics or consumer products, and we don't even, who, you know, not everybody looks at the ingredients. You know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff that we just do. It, what is it about this? Is it because it became so politicized? And forgive me, because we've only got about 30 seconds left. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I'll make it short. I, I think it's a couple of things. I think one, it's under an emergency use authorization. So okay. I think there is concern that it was developed very quickly, even though no corners were cut with regards to safety and efficacy. That's one. Two, it's become very polarized because the administ- there was an administration change. There was a lot of blame with Mm. regards to the rollout in the process. And I think three, the issue is that social media has played a huge role in this Mm. with regards to, again, polarizing people further that might have been open to the idea of vaccines. But now we've essentially put them in echo chambers and people are now just kind of, you know, in their own little insular world, if you will. I would love to talk to you on another at some point about social media and behavior, you know, the impact it's had on us as a society, because I can, I bet you have some interesting perspectives. So you have to come back at another time and talk about that. (laughs) Rupali, thank you so much. Rupali LeMay, she's Associate Director for Behavioral Research at the Institute for Vaccine Safety at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. When former President Donald Trump demanded a big, beautiful wall be built along the U.S. southern border, a guy from North Dakota, Tim, spent millions to build a three-mile stretch on the Rio Grande, and now he's kind of in a funny situation. Yeah, he spent a lot of money doing Mm -hmm. it and hasn't gotten paid yet. It's the cover of this week's Bloomberg Business Week. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the remote access line. Jeremy Keene is features editor for Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from New York City. Joel, uh, this is a wild, wild story. It involves Steve Bannon, uh, some legal issues as well. Uh, first of all, uh, who is Tommy Fisher? 
So, so Tommy Fisher is a builder, and it, the the story really is a, an amazing one, uh, in part because it just shows this entrepreneurial spirit that that Tommy Fisher has. Um, he has ba- basically managed to build three miles of wall um, in one project. He also had another project uh that that's longer um but the three million the the three mile one which he spent 30 million dollars of his own money on is the one that the story really centers on and he he basically did it and you know it's on spec and that's the part that sort of amazes me and i'll bring jeremy in on that like jeremy like what possessed someone to build a a a three mile 30 million dollar wall on spec uh, yeah, I mean, Tommy Fisher is a guy from North Dakota um, originally, and he, you know, he's long dreamed of building an epic piece of infrastructure, and he's built, uh, I, I believe, one of the longest cathedral arch bridges uh, out there. Um, and but you know, that didn't really bring him the kind of renown he was after. So, you know, when Trump started talking about a wall, uh, he got himself on Fisher got himself on Fox News and kind of got his name out there, and ended up hooking up with. Um, Steve Bannon and uh, Brian Colfage's uh, We Build the Wall organization. They built uh, one quick, uh, small wall and then came to this project. Uh, and just as the money was starting to come in for it, uh, Mr. Bannon and Mr. Colfage ran into some legal issues that, uh, you know, around that around that same year that, that sort of scuttled the project. So Fisher said, well, I'm going to keep doing the wall. And struck some deals with Texas landowners, put what he says is 30 million bucks into it, and off he went. Yeah, it's, I feel like this is a story to some extent of a wall, a builder, a radio host, the journalist. <laughs> like, I love the way it's told uh, and how it unfolds. Um, what's, you know, I always wonder about the pitch that you guys got for this story, Um Joel, what can you tell us about? I mean, obviously, we've all been obsessed with this ball. We know the president was obsessed with this wall. I think we were all a little surprised that there was to find that there was some that was built. But then you've got this guy who wants to, like, sell it. <laughs> you, you know, I think the the element um, that really drew us in uh, when, when Simon um, pitched it to us is, is this idea that, I mean, I did not know that Tommy Fisher existed. Yeah. I didn't know that he had built a wall, you know, like, you know, literally. And like the feat that he was able to accomplish here is worth discussing a little bit, which is, you know, there's plenty of wall that's already been built and President Trump rebuilt a lot of existing wall. What what he and what Fisher's accomplished here was to actually put three miles of wall on private land in Texas, which is really this is along the Rio Grande, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more here. In a second, it, in doing so and accomplishing this on private land, that has always been the 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 thing that sort of anybody who wanted to build a wall couldn't quite figure out a way to do it. And so the fact that he was able to crack it um, is, is is why I think uh, as he go, you know part of his pitch here is, uh, and I think he's looking at the state of Texas at this point because Governor Abbott there is, seems to be the one who's willing to probably do something. Um, but, but the fact that he was able to do this on on private land and on a river, uh, is sort of, I think bears a little bit more discussion. And and Jeremy, why don't, why don't you talk about that? Because the fact that he was able to do this so close to the river is actually like where a lot of the controversy stems from. Right. So, you know, Simon was curious about this story, you know, really began with his curiosity about 
all this talk about walls and whether they work and that kind of thing. And so he went down there, he got the big tour. And, you know, one of the things he, he drove around with some of, uh, some of Fisher's subcontractors with Fisher, talked to some ex border agents, talked to residents, talked to people who really opposed the wall. And, um, you know, one of the things that's really unusual about it is uh, where there's federal wall in Texas, it tends to be built quite a ways away from the actual border, the, the Rio Grande and the Rio Grande Valley. And, that's because it's privately held land. Fisher struck all these deals with private landowners, managed to build the wall where there's only, you know, a few hundred feet or something like that separating the wall from the actual border. And that, you know, the border patrol guys sort of say that's made it a little easier to patrol that one three mile stretch. Um, as the cover shows, you, you know, you can literally walk around it if, once you reach the end of it. Um, but, um, you know that what what ended up happening though is, you know, uh, Fisher got sued lawsuits that he's that he's contesting. Um, the the National Butterfly Center sued, uh, you know, sort of claiming <laughs> that um, that that there was going to be sort of environmental damage caused by flooding, um, if uh, you know, in the event of heavy rain because of the way the wall was built. Um, and uh, uh, the U.S. government actually, ironically, uh, launched a suit the, the Boundary and Water Commission. Because it argued that uh, that it's illegal to actually move the border in a physical sense, and they argued that the wall itself could displace mm. the borderline because the river would get would get the banks would change like that kind of thing, and so um, yeah, it's created. I mean, you know, there's a lot of controversy over that. There's controversy over whether it's actually going to accomplish the thing that you know all the uh, that past governments have, have tried to accomplish in building border wall elsewhere. Hey, Jeremy, yeah. where does Steve Bannon come into all of this and the foundation that, that he started with uh, Brian Colfedge? Right. So we built the wall. They were these guys who basically were just like, well, you know, it's so hard to get it all done federally. Then uh, then we'll just get down there and fund it. And they got they got people to fund it. You know, I think Simon puts it that it's you know, ordinary cable news watching types. Um, and, you know, they, they got donations um Based on um, you know, just based on this call through Fox News and that kind of thing, um, but uh, then in August 2020, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York indicted Bannon and Colfage and a couple of other figures from the group, saying that they had enriched themselves with uh, with money that they'd assured donors to go to wall construction, and so that's where Fisher kind of picked it up. And you know right. what ended up happening, Colfage and the other defendants. Pleaded not guilty. Bannon had pleaded not guilty, and then he got this uh, this pardon from Trump that seems to field an improper. Well, the, there is a lot to this story, including uh, you'll learn about Foreman Mike, who was kicked off the site. But you're going to have to read the story. Check it out uh, in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's also online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, our thanks to Jeremy Keene, features editor at Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone in New York. Joe Weber, our editor here at Bloomberg Business Week uh, on the Access Line in Brooklyn. It's not actually a wall, too. It's a fence. It's a fence. Uh, but you there's a reason. So that, yeah, so border agents can actually see through it and see what's going on on the other side. Exactly. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Tim Stenovic. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Master and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. As we mentioned earlier, a wait what moment for us all today is a chip bellwether this week warned about semi-demand peaking. Yes, you heard it right. And it's the wait what is because 
Tim, we've been talking so much about chip shortages. Right, and chip shortages affecting everything from cars to refrigerators to smartphones. Yeah, so let's get into it. Uh, Making sense of it all, as he always does for us when it comes to anything on the semiconductor industry. Ian King, he is U.S. semiconductor and networking reporter here at Bloomberg News, uh, and he is in our San Francisco uh, Bureau... Ian, help. <laughs> so help, we, get us some chips, Ian. We, right, we or, will... <laughs> do we have too many chips? And you understand the cycle. So what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, the, the, underlying, the underlying concern is the issue here today. That's why Texas Instruments stock is down more than 5%. That's why the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index is down. And it's not a case of, oh, things went terribly wrong. TI did not say that. But what they didn't do was come out and thump their chest and talk about a path to things getting more wonderful. Um, what analysts and investors look for is when a company like TI posts a 41% revenue increase in a quarter, is is this the peak? Is this it? Is this as good as it gets? And they pestered and pestered TI about this, and TI were like, look, it, it is what it is. You know, we're not going to help you out here one way or the other. We're just going to run our company as best we can. And the numbers that they gave for the current quarter, again, not terrible, but maybe only a 20% increase this quarter. So the, the sort of derivative argument from that is maybe we've peaked. So they didn't actually say we may be peaked. It's just what they didn't say, basically. Yeah, I mean, TI are a very conservative management team. You know, they focus on cash returns and and really don't get into discussing the details of what's going on in end markets and things like that. They, in fact, actively avoid doing that. And so that lack of willingness to share information and give granularity sort of feeds into this kind of feeding frenzy that we saw on their earnings call where analysts who, you know, are looking for investors out for investors and looking to call a peak on, you know, a bunch of stocks that have gone up very high started to get concerned. Ian, what do we know about companies potentially hoarding chips because they're concerned about supplies and and how that could be playing into this? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. That is the, the derivative here is that, you know, when you look at such a rapid run up, um, the concern always is that companies that couldn't get enough ordered twice as much as they need. Right, because why wouldn't they? Sure, right, just to make sure that they can get enough. Um, and then when they get more than they actually need, that either goes into inventory or they stop ordering completely. And, and this is typically what has happened in the past. We've seen these kind of steep spikes followed always by uh, a very rapid downturn. There's a lot of people out there sort of arguing, oh, no, this time is different, but um, I think the people who've been looking for a long time say, well, that will never be the case. But that's what happens in this industry. You've yeah. you've been great in coming on our air, Ian, and talking about how this industry operates. And there tends to be, right, these these booms and busts. And there are lead times, right, that that's why you get these disconnections. Yeah, no, that's absolutely it. I mean, to, to be fair, we're going to hear from Intel in about an hour. And Intel CEO Gelsinger, he's been out one of the leading voices saying, look, no, actually – kind of is different this time. We can see sustained above average growth because there are so many new things that need chips that never did before, vehicles being just one example. Um, and therefore, we're going to see sustained demand in a way that we're not going to get the crashes like when we just depended on computers and smartphones for all of our revenue. Um, but as the CFO of Texas Instruments told us, that's a dangerous thing to say. Well, Go ahead, Carol. Just real quickly, though. Is he right? Ian, you've been following, I mean, 
who am I to, who are any of us to question <laughs> the Intel CEO, but you also have been following this industry and understanding how there are more chips in our world, pretty much in everything that we do, it feels like. Is he right, though? Well, I think the, the middle ground would be to say that perhaps the diversity that the industry now enjoys compared to the past would perhaps cushion some of the amplitude. Mm. But at the same time, can we expect the company revenues to be going up at 40% a quarter, I think it's difficult to argue that that is sustainable. So what would you be looking for with Intel earnings today? What are you going to keep your eye on? Yeah, I mean, Intel is a different case, right? Intel has basically got problems of its own making. So Pat Gelsinger, the new CEO, has come out and said, look, I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to get back, you know, our leadership in technology. But Investors have said, oh, great, we, we like this. But then they thought, oh, actually, no, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. So we'll be looking at how that impacts their margins, how that impacts their growth rates. And remember, world's largest chip maker is the only large chip maker that's going to actually shrink this year, according to estimates. Jeez. And then meanwhile, I mean, you've got something like, yeah, then there's everybody else. I mean, when, I don't know if TSMC came out and said this, or is there one other company that could also come out and say something that would make you say, well, wait a minute, maybe there is something different. Definitively. I I think, you know, the, 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 the details are, you know, the devil's in the details here because a lot of companies, you know, don't know exactly when what they sell is going to be used. They're right at the back of the supply chain, which is what the CFO of, of Texas Instruments said here. Um, so if we see inventory start to creep up, if we see order rates start to mm. slow, then, then it's usually those are the signs of the tipping point is coming. Can you just go through some of the other products that we use each and every day, apart from cars and refrigerators that we talk about, that has diversified the revenue streams for these companies? We have about 30 seconds. There's a well, chip in my brain, just yeah, so you know. I, I okay? wish. I mean, it's actually easy. You know, I think it's easier to, to name something that doesn't yeah, that's have funny. a semiconductor in it these days. I mean, everything that's to do with your autom- the automation of your daily life, but even things as esoteric as pieces of factory equipment are now yeah. being connected to the internet and now being using AI processing to make them more efficient. It it really, you know, there's been a blossoming of use of these things. You're so amazing. Ian, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, Ian King, uh, he is, of course, our U.S. Semiconductor Networking Reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from our San Francisco Bureau. Check him out on Twitter at Ian M. King. But it'll be, it'll be big when, it'll we, be big. when Intel reports. Yeah, Intel after the bell today. We had Texas Instruments yesterday. Uh, and next week, Carol, is the big week for earnings. Yeah, Even I mean, these two weeks are like killers. Yeah. This weekend, you're right, next week is a really, really big one. Uh, and hearing from a, uh, a wide swath of companies. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
We've just got about ten and a half minutes left in today's. Wow, cool. time flies. <laughs> I forgot how quick that came up. Exactly, Gone right? For a few days, and suddenly it's the market close. Well, wait, wait, wait! Let that happen. Let's get to it. Uh, drive to the close with Matt Forrester, Director and Chief Investment Office for Lockwood Investment at BNY Mellon's Pershing. Matt with us on the phone from Pennsylvania again. Hey, Matt, how are you? Hi, Carol. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Interesting week, you know, sell off some nervousness in the market on Monday, worried about the Delta variant, uh, worried about slowing or peak economic growth. And then Tuesday happens and it's like Monday never happened. And then Wednesday happened and it's like really Monday never happened. And then there was today where markets were kind of struggling to find some definitive direction. Feels like we have a little bit more of it right now, but I'm almost wondering, are we already counting down to the deluge of earnings next week, and then that Fed meeting. Well, sure. It's not really too surprising to see confusion and cross-currents in, in this week as the markets hit these transition points, the slower growth, and you know potential policy changes as, as we go through the year. Obviously, the Delta and Lambda question is something that we'll definitely have to face, and I think probably will come up with the markets again. Um, and just in, in terms of rates, right, we've seen, uh, you know, a real decline in interest rates that's continued even while we've had the equity markets uh, rebounding from where we were Monday. But uh, it's just important to remember that U.S. interest rates are more sensitive to the global picture than um, maybe just the U.S. Uh, economic picture. So um, not too surprised to see, you know, rates uh, continue to decline as we see countries like Australia in 50 percent lockdown. So still a lot going on as the globe tries to recover from COVID. So we're obviously, I mean, I think for so many Americans, they thought that we were on the other side of this, especially if they've been vaccinated. And now we see what's happening here in the U.S. with the Delta variant and also what's happening around the world. It's, it's not the case. Do you think markets are, are, are taking that into account? We kind of saw that happen on, on Monday, but that's like way in the rearview mirror at this point, Matt, with the yeah, S&P 500 and the Dow. Like what's that? And I, would, and I think most market strategists just felt that COVID was kind of behind yeah. it. Yeah. And, and suddenly we get this resurgence on Monday. I do think there's a lot of questions about how the markets were technically set up uh, for you know some kind of correction on Monday, and just needed an excuse to uh, you know make some temporary market corrections. But you know it's all in the rearview mirror, and it's in the rearview mirror to an extent because we've had these kind of surging uh, forward EPS estimates. Um, you know, and that's occurring at a time when you know a lot of economists are really looking for a deceleration as we you know, get into the next couple quarters of growth. So. Um, you know, it, it does raise the question of whether uh, analysts are getting a little too optimistic about what they see in forward earnings coming, but it uh, still seems like the recovery is very much intact and it's going to be a deceleration from higher growth rates to lower growth rates, uh, which is not all that bad for equity markets. I guess the big question is, right, um, you know, Matt, when we think about it, is how much of the bounce back that we've seen is just getting back to where we were pre-pandemic, how much of it is also taking into account expectations of even more growth to come the rest of the year? I guess that's where we have to, what we have to think about in terms of valuations. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, things like other things that have happened today, which are the most interesting action today was actually in the commodity pits, you know, where we see uh, coffee at a six-year mm-hmm. high um, and, you know, coal at a 52-week high. We see, you know, lumber kind of bouncing back off the bottom. So we've had a tremendous decline in, in where lumber has been. It'll probably take a long time for it to recover. But, um, you know, all on supply issues, whether that's Brazilian frost or, 
um, uh, drop in European wind power or forest fires in Canada. All these things that are, you know, related to climate um, have been affecting the supply side, but it doesn't help the inflation story. And so, you know, it does raise questions about, you know, what is transitory and what does that mean for markets? And, it, and are markets aligned differently to the word transitory than the Fed may mm-hmm. be? And I think that's maybe the most important question is, you know, we, we've heard some economists and some policymakers say they think it's going to be a couple months. And uh, I'm not so sure that that's the right expectation. Maybe it's going to be longer than that, given some of these other concerns to pricing. OK, well, I want to, I want to get to the Fed in just a minute, because we are, of course, going to yeah. hear from Fed Chair Jay Powell next week. Uh Sure. Time flies. Like I said, it's surprising that we're hearing from him again. Uh, I, I do wonder, though, about earnings because we're, we're, we're smack dab in the middle of it. Next week's going to be huge for earnings. This week is pretty big. After the bell, we expect to hear from uh, Intel, Snap, Twitter, Boston Beer, among others. Um, what have you learned thus far? Expectations? Uh, are, are you seeing companies deliver earning, deliver results that are justifying these valuations? Yeah, so far, I think that's the story. And I think that's why markets have uh, rebounded. And um, you know, I think we're getting to a place where earnings are going to matter more for uh, markets. So, you know, we've seen over the last couple of quarters, companies meet uh, elevated expectations and stocks weren't necessarily rewarded for that. Um, and now I think there's more of a delineation between companies that are doing well that aren't. I mean, you've seen some tech companies kind of dis- disappoint a little today, and they're actually getting uh, hit in the market a little more than others would. So um, I think earnings are going to start to matter, and I think the forward expectations are really going to start to matter because we absolutely need to see um, the earnings come through to justify these really high valuations in stocks, and particularly in, for some of the market leaders. Is it likely we're going to have some kind of taper tantrum? Or, I mean, the Fed has gotten pretty wise about managing expectations and spoon feeding changes in policy. And we have to. Tantrum, <laughs> spoon feeding. It sounds like some, we're a bunch of babies. Meet the investor, the toddler. Um, but, it's, but it, you know, at some point we want that to happen. It's a reminder that things are getting back to normal, that the economy can manage on its own. That's a good thing. Yeah, well, there's no way that their neutral policy rate or this concept of R-star is anywhere near their policy rate is today. Um, So we're going to have to begin that adjustment. I think uh, any Fed communications period that we see from here into the fall is going to start setting the, uh, the measure for what we can expect the Fed to do at some point in time. And I think they're going to take their time and because they're worried about a repeat of what happened in May of 2013, where we had an 85 basis point back up in real interest rates and really set virtually all assets class uh, on their head for a while, about six weeks. And uh, unfortunately, right now, we're positioned rather poorly for that. And we have these incredibly negative real interest rates across the entire U.S. interest rate complex. So, uh, you know, I think that's going to be a challenging adjustment for markets, and we could see, you know, a, a significant adjustment when this paper actually occurs. It's predictions for uh, end of the year. Are we going to see a sell-off uh, in the second quarter? I mean, in the, th- in the third quarter, fourth quarter, second half of the year? We're so overdue for, you know, some kind of a, uh, a pullback in the equity markets, particularly, um, you know, we, you know, the average drawdown in an equity any year is 14, 15 percent. And we haven't gotten anything close to that this year. So uh, I think you almost always have to have that expectation in the back of your mind. And you have to remember that we're going into the typical kind of August seasonals, which are not particularly favorable, favorable for markets. So. Um, I think it's a base case expectation. They have to be ready for some volatility as we go into the fall. Mm. 
um, particularly with all these issues around uh, Fed policy and policy adjustments coming up. Right, Matt, we've seen this movie before, right? We see some sell-off in yeah. the, su- the summer. We see a run-up. We see a little bit of a pullback or maybe even a, a true correction. And then we kind of resume the move upward into the later you know, <laughs> months of the year. So we'll see what happens. Hey, Matt, thank you so much. Matt Forrester, he's Director and Chief Investment Officer for Lockwood Investment at BNY Mellon's Pershing. He is with us on the phone in Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.